Well, let me have you take your Bibles out, that abiding word that we just sang about in, in part. Turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Mark and to chapter 12. We'll be continuing our journey through Mark's Gospel today. We'll be reading verses 13 through 17, just that short portion, and that will be our text for today as well. So follow along as I read Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of God. Let us hear it as such this morning. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him, or they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. As we get ready to look into this portion of Scripture, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us, Lord, for our good, for our instruction, Lord. Uh, We thank you for this passage that is before us. We pray that you would um, bless the one who preaches, bless we as we hear, and we pray that, most of all, that your spirit would illumine our hearts, that we might understand what you have for us in this passage today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, as we come today through Mark's gospel to the city of Jerusalem here, it is Tuesday in Jerusalem. The city continues to be very crowded and very busy as people continue to arrive and to prepare for the Passover feast that is about to begin. For Jesus and his disciples, for Jesus particularly, Tuesday is an unbelievably busy day. Uh, We'll continue to see that as we go through this chapter, the next chapter, But it has already begun. Tuesday began, remember, with the walk from Bethany into Jerusalem. Along the way, passing a fig tree, a fig tree that the day before Jesus had cursed. And as they came to that fig tree, they saw that it had withered up from the roots. This day continued as Jesus arrived at the temple and began to walk through the the outer areas of the temple, the court of the Gentiles there, uh, where anyone, Jew, Gentile, men and women, could all uh, come. They were all welcome there, and he began to teach. And as he did, he was confronted there by a group of representatives of a group known as the Sanhedrin, uh, the high court of the Jews. And 
the sworn enemies of Jesus. That is, Jesus was their enemy. And they asked him on this occasion where his authority came from, his authority to do what he had been doing, especially his actions the day before in clearing the temple and condemning the Jewish leaders uh, for turning God's house of prayer into a place of business, a marketplace. They asked him where that authority came from. And of course, his answer to them was to not answer after he had spoken to them and challenged them. But Jesus then began, again, still on Tuesday, began a series of parables in which he further exposes the the hypocrisy and the wickedness of the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, and the scribes of Israel. And in doing so, infuriating them as even they are able to see in these parables, we looked at one of them, Mark records just one of them, Uh, We looked at it last week as Jesus told the story of a man who built a vineyard and he leased it to tenants who ended up being very wicked tenants and, as we saw last week, ended up scheming and killing the beloved and only son of the, the owner of the vineyard. At the conclusion of that parable, Mark tells us that the Jewish leaders realized that Jesus was talking about them, that the people that were hearing this realized that Jesus was talking about the leaders, and it infuriated them. In fact, Mark tells us at the end of our passage that we looked at last week in verse 12 that the, peop- that the leaders wanted to arrest Jesus there on the spot, but they didn't because they feared the people, because the people held Jesus in, in high esteem. Now, remember, I mentioned the Sanhedrin. Let me just remind you that the Sanhedrin, this high court of of Israel, is composed of three different groups. There were the high priests, a group primarily made up of those who belong to the the group of the Sadducees. Uh, The Sanhedrin was made up of the scribes. These were the experts in the law of Moses, and they were primarily Pharisees. Uh, the experts in the law. And then there were a group called the elders, sort of the laity of the group. They, were, they belonged to the upper class, to the aristocracy of the Jews, and they all together made up this group. And it was the representatives of that group that Jesus, as we saw last week, fairly impaled them on the horns of a dilemma with this parable that he had given. And they were unable to extract themselves from it. But now the Sanhedrin are going to try to turn the tables on Jesus, so to speak, by laying a trap for him, which we will see that Jesus handles with divine wisdom. And along the way, as he does so, he makes a hugely important point to them and to us this morning. So let us not see this simply as something that happened uh, 2,000 years ago for the people uh, then. It also applies to us. We'll see that as we, as we go along, particularly toward the end. But we want to start by looking at the laying of the trap. After the humiliation uh, of the Sanhedrin by Jesus in this parable, Mark says here in our passage in verse 13 that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. 
Now remember, we're, I mentioned last week, we're going to see several episodes here of confrontation uh, between Jesus and, and this group. And we began uh, actually to see it last week, but we continue to see it here. The, the, the Sanhedrin send to Jesus, we read, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees, and some of the Herodians. So the Sanhedrin, after Jesus humiliates them in this parable, they get together very quickly, because this happens and a lot of things happen after this, on this one day. Uh, Matthew says that the Pharisees went and plotted uh, their next step, and they did so quickly. And coming up with a plan, they send a delegation again to confront Jesus. A group that Mark tells us here is made up of some of the Pharisees. Now that makes sense to us. We know who the Pharisees are. Uh, And, he says, some of the Herodians. Well, who are they? Who are the Herodians? We don't hear nearly as much about them. We have met them before in Mark's gospel, but it was way back in chapter 3. If you can remember back that far, good for you. Uh, But then the Pharisees, after Jesus there, had again revealed the hardness of their heart. Uh, He had healed a man on the Sabbath. They were upset with him about that, and and through that, Jesus revealed their really hard hearts. Um, And then when he did that, back in chapter 3 and verse 6, right at the end of that passage, we read that they went out, the Pharisees did, and immediately, it says, held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So that has been sort of the, the, the plan between these two groups, or at least a discussion, since way back toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, back in chapter 3. So who are they? Who are the Herodians? Well, you see the word Herod in there. If you did, good. Uh, the Herodians were a group of Jewish people, uh, Jewish men, who were supporters of the Roman government of the Roman Empire. They were aligned ideologically, uh, politically, with the rule of the Romans over the Jews and with the Herods, the, 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 the governors that they had set over the people of Israel. And these Herodians were, were very happy for the, the Roman Empire to remain in power. They were ideological Hellenists, Greekified uh, Jews. They were politicians, really, uh, who were happy with the Romans. Now, think about that for a moment, and think about how a group with those sort of alignments, those kinds of, of, of ideas, how would they normally, you think, mix with a group like the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the hyper-religious in Israel. Remember, they are the ones who, who tithed of the smallest herbs, who would not walk on the same side of the street as an unclean Gentile. And the Pharisees, we know, hated the Romans. They hated, as the people in general, hated the, the subjugation of the Jewish people by the Romans, including the Herods. First, remember, Herod the Great, and then uh, Herod Antipas, and, and later Herod Agrippa. So where the Herodians were politicians, 
the Pharisees were theologians. Uh, the scribes, who we read about as the experts in the law, they were typically from the Pharisees as well. So how could these two groups do anything together? It's almost as bad as the Republicans and the Democrats do, trying to do anything together. But how could these groups join together? How could they be sent together as a delegation by the Sanhedrin in general and say, you guys go together and deal with Jesus? trap Jesus. Well, it's, it all goes down to that old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The two had a common enemy in Jesus of Nazareth. The Pharisees, because Jesus, time and again, called them out, called out their, their externalism, their hypocrisy, their, their tendency to distort God's law and to augment it or to replace it with their own, with the tradition of the elders. Uh, they envied Jesus. The Bible will tell us that they end up turning, them, turning him over to the Romans out of envy. And then the, the Herodians, well, they didn't like Jesus either because of Jesus' priority on the kingdom of God, uh, a kingdom not of this world, but nevertheless a kingdom that takes priority over any kingdom of this world, any earthly kingdom or any earthly king, a king that demanded absolute loyalty be given or be shown to him and forbade things like the deification of the Caesars, the Roman emperors, which was a standard practice in the Roman Empire. So the Pharisees hate Jesus, the Herodians hate Jesus. And so because of that, the Sanhedrin sends this delegation. Delegation. Um, Luke, in his gospel, he just comes right out and calls them spies. But they send this group to Jesus. And their goal is not to discuss theology with Jesus. They're not wanting to have a roundtable discussion about, about this or that. But their purpose, verse 13 says it for us, is to trap him in his talk. To trap him. They're using a word there that refers to hunting down and catching an animal for food. They want to hunt him down. And they want to get him to say something that will get him in trouble with somebody, preferably the Romans. In order, Luke tells us, to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That's their, that's their plan. So let's call this what it is. It's a trap. And they come to Jesus and they begin to lay this trap before him. And they begin with flattery. Teacher, they call him. He is that. Um, it's not a hugely sycophantic beginning, but a respectful address. Verse 14 begins and says that they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Stop there. Very interesting words. 
I say that because they don't truly believe any of that. They don't believe any of the things that they're saying. They're buttering Jesus up, as it were. Flattery here is intended to ingratiate themselves in a way to Jesus, to distract him if they might, to get him off guard, to put him at ease in a receptive frame of mind in order to set this trap that they might spring it. But interestingly, as it turns out, they are speaking true words about Jesus. They don't believe the things that they're saying, but they don't, at least they don't believe the first and the last thing that they mentioned. They don't believe that what he taught was true, that he was a man of integrity. And they don't believe that he truly teaches the way of God. The Pharisees thought that they did. They don't believe what they're saying, but everything they say about Jesus is true about Jesus. He is true. He is a man of integrity, a man of principle. And he does not, Mark writes, uh, care about anyone's opinion. That's to say he's not swayed by anyone else. He defers to no one based on their perceived authority, which is kind of interesting because that's what they are hoping that he will do in regard to them. But Jesus, as the, as the Bible speaks of God throughout the Bible, he is not a respecter of persons. And as Paul says in Romans 2.11, he does not show partiality. That's true. And it is true that he is, therefore, not swayed by appearances. And those things... They don't believe it, but you have to wonder how they couldn't believe it. They've seen it. They've been sort of the the target of it. The Jesus teaching does not change based on the situation. Even with the the authority of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin coming before him, that doesn't change Jesus' teaching at all. Now, sometimes, depending on who he's talking to, the manner of his speech may change, but the truths and the teaching never change because, as God, Christ never changes. And he is the same, the author of Hebrews says, yesterday, today, and forever. So his teaching is the same way. It doesn't change. Today, there's all sorts of people in all sorts of situations for all sorts of reasons saying, well, the Bible doesn't actually mean that. It may have, maybe it did before, but now we understand it with a more sophisticated mind. And we understand that the things that the Bible clearly says are evil, are abominations. Today, they say, well, no, the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus never changed what he taught, and the Bible never changes what it teaches. And Jesus, as the teacher, as the bringer of God's word, as the prophet of God, as we sang and spoke about earlier, Jesus didn't care about appearance or social or religious standing of the people he's talking to. He cared about people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, religious and pagan. Jesus is the unbiased spokesman for God, a teacher of the truth. 
a teacher with conviction. They don't believe all of these things, but they say them. They pour it on. And by it, by this, this flattery, their trap is laid. And thus being laid, now they spring it. So we see, secondly, the springing of the trap. And it's with a question that seems to come out of left field. Though we know it doesn't. Remember, this, is part, this, is, this question is the result of the, the plotting of the Sanhedrin and of the Pharisees. And the question would have interest to both the theologian Pharisees and to the politician Herodians. And here it is at the end of verse 14, the last sentence. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? I can almost hear them, can't you? Kind of sort of snickering under their, their breath and maybe nudging each other. Let's see how he handles this. So what is, a, what is so brilliant about this trap? It, it is kind of brilliant, at least in their minds, because what they have done here is they have actually brought up one of the most controversial topics among the Jews at this time. And it would have gotten the attention of anyone who was standing by within earshot to hear it. By the way, it's a similarly interesting question that's asked by Christians today. You know, there are those two things that we're, we're taught are sort of constants and inevitabilities, death and taxes, right? Um, that's not quite true, but it's not too far from it. We're going to leave death out of it here because that's not part of what we're looking at here, but taxes, even if they're not a certainty, they almost are. And they are pretty well across the board despised. We don't like to pay taxes. No one that I know likes to pay taxes. I don't like to pay taxes. The Jews didn't like to pay taxes. But the situation with the Jews here in, in, in Mark in Palestine in the first century had an additional complication to it that, that our taxes don't. The taxes that the Jews had to pay did not go to the Jewish government because the Jews, remember, were under subjection to the Roman Empire. Palestine, the area that we call Israel, uh, was a province of the Roman Empire, ruled over by the Romans since uh, 63 B.C. Their taxes were the taxes of a subjugator, one who uh, subjects someone to something. And having to pay taxes as well as other forms of tribute uh, to an occupying country gives an especially bitter taste to the idea of paying taxes. The Jews, or the, the Jews paid taxes to Caesar, to the emperor of the Roman Empire, and they understandably hated it. The thought of paying anything to Rome, just, and we can understand this, just turned their stomachs, set their teeth on edge. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that tax collectors, Jewish 
people who would work for the Roman government and collect taxes. That's one of the reasons that they were so hated in Israel, was because the taxes were so hated. And some of the Jews, well, they went so far to to not just hate paying taxes, but they believed that the Jews were not under a moral obligation to pay taxes to Caesar. They didn't have a choice, but they didn't have to like it. Or anyone involved with assessing or collecting those taxes. And they most decidedly didn't. The tax that is being discussed here was uh, what's called a poll tax or a head tax. And a poll tax or head tax was a tax that was levied against everyone or, or maybe just every adult. Regardless of how much you made or how much you produced, it was just a a tax on your head, on you. They all had to pay the same tax, regardless of how much you you earned. And this tax to the Jews, that kind of tax especially, was just a constant reminder of the fact that they were under the subjugation of the Romans. And so they hated it all the more. It was a constant reminder that we are the underlings here. And therein was the trap was the, the instrument that dealt the damage. What would Jesus say? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it permitted? Is it right? Is it allowed? Uh, here was their calculation then. They asked this question to Jesus. If Jesus said it was okay, it was permitted to pay taxes to Caesar, yes, uh, the way they, they ask it in the second part of their sentence, should we pay them or should we not, if Jesus says, yes, you should, because they're, they're lawful, well, then the people would turn against Jesus, was their, their, the Pharisee's idea. But if Jesus then says that it was not lawful, that it was not proper to pay taxes, well, then the Sanhedrin would have what they needed to bring Jesus then to the Romans and to say that he is instigating rebellion by telling people that they don't have to pay taxes. That's the trap. So how did Jesus handle it? How did he handle this clever bit of reasoning? Well, he evades it. That's the third thing we're going to see, the evading, evading the trap. All the cleverness of the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, this strange mix of religious and political emissaries here, doesn't fool Jesus for a moment, of course. Uh, John tells us in his gospel that Jesus knew what was in men, and he knows what's in these men before him. Mark says, but knowing their hypocrisy... He knew that they were trying to catch him. He knew that this was a trap, trying to trap him in his words. He knew that they thought they had him on the horns of a dilemma like he had them in the previous passage. But he sees right through it here as well. Mark writes, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Now, why are you doing this? You know, they've done it before. Mark 8, uh, verse 11, and Mark 10, verse 2, describes a couple of times that they've tried this same sort of thing. And Jesus avoided it. Some people just don't learn. And so Jesus tells them, verse 15, he says, bring me 
a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So a denarius, which is what Jesus asked for, it's kind of interesting that Jesus doesn't have one. The disciples apparently don't have one. It's possible that the, the um, group that has come to him doesn't have one. But they find one, they get one. A denarius was a small silver Roman coin, and it was worth a day's wages to a general laborer. Matthew 20, verse 2 tells us that. And the denarius was the only currency with which one could pay this poll tax. Um, No direct pay, no EFTPS, no credit card, no checks. You had to use money, and you had to use this money. You had to use this Roman coin, which probably made it even worse to the Jews, that they have to use the Roman currency as well for this. But Jesus asks for one of these coins. They get one of these coins. They bring it to him. He turns it over. He looks at it. He shows it to them. And he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Who's it a picture of on here? And what does the writing say? Well, the answer was that the picture, the likeness on this coin of this time, was that of the current emperor of the Roman Empire, Tiberius Caesar. Remember, Caesar's not a name at the, in this usage. It was more of a title. It was taken from the name Julius Caesar, the general, uh, but it was a name that was sort of given to the Roman emperors. So Tiberius was the, the Caesar right now. Uh, before him was Caesar Augustus. After him was Caligula. Uh, all Caesars. Each emperor, though, would mint their own coins, it's the way they are, it's the way men are, and they would all put their picture on it, their, their image. And so this coin, this denarius, bore the image of the emperor Tiberius, who, if you're interested, reigned from A.D. 14 to about A.D. 37. But Jesus, we see, asked about a likeness and an inscription. And there were two inscriptions on a denarius. On the front, with the the picture of the emperor, was the inscription that in English says, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus, his father. And on the back side, there was an inscription that said, Pontiff Maxim, which meant highest priest. We'll come back to that. Jesus asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they respond, Caesar's. To which then Jesus gives the masterful reply that we see in verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. He starts out, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus is saying, Give to Caesar, give to the empire, give to the government the things to which they're entitled. The coin, Jesus notes and and points out, or has them point out to him, bears the image of Caesar. It is the coin of the realm, and it belongs to the government. It is the appointed means of commerce, of buying and selling. All of our money here in the United States today is is designated, and it's actually printed on the paper money, as legal tender. 
which means that it is required by the government that that money be recognized and accepted as satisfactory payment for any monetary debt. Well, the denarius was legal tender in the Roman Empire. And it was within the authority of the empire to impose taxes. It's one of the things you get to do when you're the winner. And the image on the coin was a symbol of that authority to make it very clear where that authority rested. You know, we've, we've mentioned, and, and we bear witness, we agree that taxes are unpopular things. You know, our, our nation was born in part from the dissatisfaction of having to pay taxes to another country that we didn't agree with and which we had to pay without any representation uh, in Parliament. You know, so we understand this kind of thing. It's unpopular in, well, it was unpopular uh, then, it's unpopular now, it was unpopular in the first century. Many people see taxes as legalized theft or certainly coerced giving under the pain of imprisonment. And we may complain, and we often do, um, but some complain against Jesus' words here and against the teaching of the Bible that citizens are to pay their taxes. You know, and we will, we will point out, and people will point out, boy, that taxes are often unfair, they are too high, they are misused, they are used to fund things that we recognize are morally repugnant, and they usually end up lining the pockets of politicians. So we look at that, and so we sometimes think that we're in a different situation, certainly than the Jews in first century Palestine. And you'd be right, the situations are different. The situation in Jesus' day was far worse than ours. The Roman emperors were corrupt, godless, immoral pagans. And the Jews were subjugated under them, under the empire. The Jewish people were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And this particular tax was a tax that only members of these Roman provinces, like Palestine, had to pay. Roman citizens in free Roman states, they were exempt. They didn't have to pay this. On top of that, the people who collected the tax for the Roman Empire could add on top of the legitimate taxes whatever they thought they could get. Another reason tax collectors were hated. Now, of course, there were positives. The Roman Empire also contributed to the well-being of the Jews as subjects of their empire. They gave to them safety, uh, prosperity, good order, excellent roads, peace. This, this takes, takes place during the Pax Romana that lasted from 27 B.C. to 180 A.D. So there's a peace, a general peace in the area. And it's in that situation, all of that, that Jesus says, as he's looking at the coin, he says to those who have come to trap him in his words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which certainly included the paying of taxes. You know, Paul echoes this idea in his writing on sort of the larger subject of the Christian's responsibility to, as Paul puts it, be subject to the governing authorities why? Well, Paul says, because the government is ordained by God and is God's servant for your good. 
And Paul concludes that section with this. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so Jesus' statement here, like Paul's teaching, is broader than just a statement on paying this poll tax. More broadly, submission to the government, as Paul mentioned in his passage we just read. Peter said the same thing. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. He says, honor the emperor. Now, there are limits to that. In fact, I mentioned the inscription on the coin, the inscriptions, and even read them. If we look at those inscriptions, we find that the Caesars of Rome were also claiming more than they were due. Now, Jesus is, is implying taxes, yes, pay them, because they belong to Caesar. He has the authority to, do, to impose them. You are using uh, their, their money for everything else. You have to pay your taxes. But as I mentioned, the inscription on the front referred to Caesar as divine. And the inscription on the back pointed to the Caesar as the highest priest. The Roman emperor was neither. No mere man is divine. No mere man is our highest priest. And so there are some things that the emperor wanted and thought that he was due, but was not his to demand. And many Christians in the early church lost their lives, some in horrific ways, because they would not give voice to this emperor cult in Rome and would refuse to say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord, because they knew there is only one Lord. Now, we know from the teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament that there are limits to what we may render to the civil authority. We've learned about it before, and it boils all down to this. We are to submit, the Bible teaches, to the governing authorities except when that authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands. And so Jesus deals with the question of this group with that statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he deals with their hearts with what follows. And to God, the things that are God's. The owner of the denarius and the one to whom those things were due was determined in this situation by the image that the coin bore. It bore the image of Caesar and so invoked certain things that were due to Caesar, to the emperor. But just as on this coin that day there was an image of Caesar that Jesus made reference to, there's also an image of God, not on the coin. The image of God is not born on a coin or a building or a painting or a statue or an icon. 
In fact, it is an explicit sin to try to put it or find it in those kinds of things. The image of God is found in one place, in you, in me, in every human being who has ever lived, beginning with Adam, right? Remember God when he got ready to make Adam? He said, let us make man, what? In our own image, after our likeness. Not a physical image. God doesn't have a physical image, except in the person of the Redeemer. But it's a spiritual and a moral image. It is that which separates us from the animals and from the angels. Neither are made in the image of God. You are. We are. It is that which gives inherent and undeniable value and worth to every human being. It's the reason that we must respect all human life from conception to natural death. It's the reason that we must honor equally all human life, regardless of how the ravages of the fall with all of the various diseases and defects and degenerations of age may affect it. That is to say that any disease, any defect, any degeneration of age, any of those things does not in any way affect the value and the worth of a human being because a human being is made in the image of God. That image was badly disfigured in the fall in the fall of man into sin, but not obliterated. And it both has been and is being renewed in those whom God redeems. Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10 speaks of that. And it is that, beloved, the fact that we are made in the image of God, it is that which obligates us to give to God the things that are God's. Because we are God's. That is, we belong to God. What do we owe to God? As those made in His image, what do we owe to God? Well, we owe devotion. We owe honor. We owe obedience. We owe praise. We owe worship to God. We owe all things to God. Ongoing humility, ongoing gratitude, a life of thanksgiving lived to Him. The offering of ourselves as a living sacrifice of that thanksgiving. Beloved, because we bear the image of God, we owe our total allegiance to Him. Above any emperor, above any ideology, above any custom, above any tradition, above any idea formed in our minds that somehow we don't. What does God require of you? The prophet asks. And answers, God answers to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does God require of you and me? To love the Lord your God, 
with all of your being, all of your capacity, all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. In closing, let me just give you a very practical means of reminding yourself of that message that because we are the image of God, that we owe everything to God. Just to remind you of that. It's easy. You know, we hear these things as we sit here and we go, oh, wow, that was a good point or, or that's a good truth. And then we walk out those doors and we forget it. You do it. I've done it. I preach the messages. And sometimes I can't remember what I preached about. But let me give you this as a reminder. As you're out doing your living your life, doing your business, every time you take out a coin, every time you take out a dollar, take note of the image on it. Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Roosevelt, maybe Benjamin Franklin, not as often that, maybe even Sacagawea. Take it out, look at it. And let it be a reminder that you yourself eternally bear the image of your creator, of your redeemer, of almighty God. And then as the crowd did here right at the very end, as Jesus spoke to them, um, Mark says they marveled at him. As you're reminded, as you look at that image, remember that you bear the image of God and marvel at that. And stop right there and render to God what is God's in that situation and just send up a prayer glorifying him, giving thanks to him in thankful and joyful praise. Let us always, every moment of every day, let us give to God what is God's. And to that let us say, Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the, the great truth that we are created in your image after your likeness. And we thank you that, uh, that as we've learned today, that that gives us a certain responsibility. That in all of our lives, we render to you what is yours. Even as we render to the, to the civil authorities what is, what is theirs, as your word reminds us, uh, let us focus on the fact that we are yours, O oh God, and help us to honor you. Help us to live our lives uh, in a way that brings glory to you. And re- help us to remember this, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, continue to, to bring us into submission to your word. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.